0: Thinking that like real estate, especially off-market real estate, was about the asset, about the property, when really it's not. It's more of like a like other sort of businesses where it's about solving problems. Hello and
1: welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now let's get to it. Hey, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dyk With me, excited to have Mike Dahan. Mike, how are you doing today?
0: It's been great, Todd. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely,
1: man. Well, excited to have you. Uh, a little bit about Mike. He is the owner of INW properties and also uh collecting keys, podcast, and kind of marketing brand. So Mike uh came from you know kind of your typical background, right? Uh had, had a cushy, nice, cushy job, making uh, really good money, but wasn't really satisfied. And uh, I think that it comes with, you know, most people that I talk to are either they have a really nice, cushy job and they're they're happy with it. And they want to, like, figure out how can they do something though outside of that job to make sure they're protected of their income. And then the other people are like you, man, where it's like, ah, this job sucks. <laughs> I'm making really good money, though. I got the golden handcuffs. Yeah. Um But at age 28, you just like, Hey, I'm done jump ship, no real plan, no, no concrete direction. And you spent the next couple of years with side jobs, driving for Uber, uh, just barely making a buy if different e-commerce drop shipping, marketing, um, coaching all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of fun. I want to dive into that. And then, uh, you know, now you currently have, um, your wholesaling company, INW Properties. You also have the podcast, the marketing business, collecting keys, and uh, you know, kind of big story there. So I'll let you tell the story, but, um, but yeah, fun journey. I, I'm excited to dive in. So with that said, Mike, why, why don't you tell us a little bit more, uh, kind of your background and and uh, you know what you've learned along the way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, yeah, my, my background. It's funny. I'm one of the long line of uh, engineers that gets into real estate. I don't know about you, I've talked to so many people that um, I guess weren't from real estate backgrounds that become real estate investors. And there's a huge correlation with engineers for some reason. Um, I think maybe it's just like the analytical nature of it, but you know, just, I I also- I can see that. Yeah, I I think the analytical nature, and I think also too amongst the people that get into engineering, you know, it's a decent paying job and there's a high Mm -hmm. level of job dissatisfaction. Um, in that career path like I I worked at Boeing for a few years which is like a you know dream job for most people and I think that most people at Boeing can definitely attest to this but it is full of incredibly miserable employees (laughs) like no no one no one wants to be there it's super corporate right and you know I, I I think it's the reality minus expectation of When you go to college to be an engineer, you know you think you're going to be like Tony Stark, right? You're going to be Iron Man, you're going to be designing designing cool stuff. And then the reality is, you know, with modern engineering, you get into these big workplaces and you're just a paper pusher, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're managing project schedules, you're not actually designing anything in most companies. Um, So, you know, I I went that engineering route because I knew it was going to be employable. um, Especially I started college and um, 2009. Right. So it was right after the recession. And, uh, when I actually started at school, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Um, I was on like a general track and then I went to a career fair and there was six companies there, um, at the entire, like, you know, school-wide career fair and every single one was looking for engineers. So I said, oh, well, wow. cool. I get. I guess I'm going to do that then.
1: Guess I found so, my colleague. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. <laughs> All I knew was I wanted to get a job when I graduated. I was yeah. Still short-sighted at that point, right? So got the engineering degree, worked at Boeing, worked at a couple other places, and ultimately just decided that I hated it. You know, I I worked at a, enough different companies to know that it was the career path that I didn't like and not necessarily the company I was working at. And uh, the challenge that I had, which I think a lot of people face, because I'd been in kind of that same zone for 10 years of, you know, going to school for engineering, working as an engineer, yep. I didn't really have any other interests or skill sets or anything, honestly. Yeah. Didn't have a backup plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and and like my interests were um, you know, fitness. I competed in like Olympic weightlifting and CrossFit and these other mm-hmm. sort of things at a at a pretty high level. Um so I was interested in that. You know, I was interested in like playing video games and like, you know, skiing, like things that are you don't make money doing. <laughs> like you can you can make money playing games now, but that wasn't really yeah, yeah. back then, right? Um, so ultimately I I left and I just said like, I don't know, I guess I'll just figure out my life and just dabble in stuff. Right. Um, and I will say before, before I quit my job, um, I read the four hour work week Hmm. and I didn't have like an objective in terms of like a business or, um, you know, what exactly it was going to entail, but I knew that I wanted to live by that four hour work week sort of mantra mm. and having that virtual business that allowed me to live that lifestyle. So that was ultimately my goal. Um, and then when I quit my job, and like you said, I was working as a weightlifting coach. I was driving for Uber. You know, I went from making low six figures to in two thousand and eighteen on my tax returns, I made sixteen thousand dollars. Wow. So I like literally axed my <laughs> wow. income by 85%. Did you have um, a
1: decent amount of savings set to the side? Is that how you felt confident in doing it? Or th- yeah. it was it just I, I, I gotta figure this out?
0: Yeah. So um I before I quit, um, I got really into like the financial independence movement, you know, and like yeah. doing it the way that most people do of like penny pinching, right? Yeah. So throughout the previous number of years, I'd saved a lot of money. You know, I'd been living very frugally. My wife, she had an okay job. She, she was making like 55000 which, you know, in our market was a pretty decent wage where we live. Yeah. Um, but I'd saved a ton of money off of my engineering salary over the years, sure. right? Um, and so like, even when we we left, um, I, I realistically had about a year's worth of living expenses, because when I left, we cut all of our surplus spending that we had and we were actually able to fortunately live off of my wife's income, which is only four grand a month, but we owned a house, um, that we'd bought that had, you know, the same mortgage payment every month. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't do a lot of other stuff. We'd already figured out a lot of like the food and general savings. Like, you know, we food prepped all of our stuff. We ate bulk food, all that sort of stuff. And it just, you know, it, it gave us a sense of security to sort of take that risk. Um, and we just basically mutually agreed that the sacrifice was worth the potential outcome. Um, even though I had no idea what the outcome was going to be at that point. All I knew was that as my wife put it, she was willing to take the risk if it meant that I was going to be happier. So I was very fortunate to have her support.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's huge support, right? Uh, you don't know what you're doing. You're just going to quit your job that you're making six figures. Like A yeah. lot of people would probably be like, you know, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to figure it out first. You're going to have to go get a new job. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she was like, hey, yeah, just do whatever, you know, but just just be happy. That's yeah. really cool. Um yeah. So take me to, you know, what, what you're doing now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of got to what I was doing now. Um mostly because as I like kept, you know, I, I started reading business and wealth books and real estate comes up. Constantly, right? Anything about wealth generation, um, passive income, rental properties are like a huge thing that everyone discusses. And I originally got into real estate after a bunch of different endeavors um, by going to meetups, you know, listening to bigger pockets, that sort of stuff. And I started flipping houses. Um, I started flipping houses because I recognized that I need more capital to be able to invest and actually sure. get like a decent return. And that seemed, and I liked the concept of flipping houses because. It was something that I could do myself or with a partner. It was easy to get leverage for. And by all intents and purposes, the barrier to entry was very low, right? Compared to like, you know, some of the other stuff I tried, like building e-commerce brands or, you know, drop shipping or marketing, all that, all that, all those sort of things that you have to have a skill set that takes a long time to develop. Um, You know, it's hard to find experts and it's hard to get leverage to actually be able to grow, um, you know, anything substantial. But with Flipping Houses... I didn't have a lot of money, but it was easy to find people with money that were comfortable in the real estate space, but I had time and I had hustle. So I went to these meetups and I ultimately connected with someone that was in a similar position to me and that they were new, but they had cash and they didn't have time. And we partnered up and we decided we we're going to flip some houses together. So jumped into it first house, you know, I spent five months doing it. I made a whopping four grand, but I learned an incredible amount, um, jumped into the next place and I think we made, I made 25,000. Um, started buying some properties um, with like a little bit of money that I had there combined with my savings and then started doing basically the burr method. So we, you know, buy it and we fix it up and refinance our money out and then repeat that process. Um, and then after doing that a couple of times, I was buying deals from wholesalers and I was looking at these 30, $40,000 fees that I was paying these people. And then I went to a meetup and I, it was like a, I don't know, like a local cool kids meetup, I guess, for the people that were actively buying that were sort of hand-selected by like the biggest wholesaler in town. It was a whole thing for him to grow his buyers list. And I met all these guys and I'm like, I could do what these guys are doing, right? Like, they're, it's not crazy. It's not like they're super, you know, more experienced than me or they're like that or smarter yeah. than me. Yeah. So I decided I was going to start going off market myself. Um, and that was at the beginning of 2020. And that sort of kick started my, my own wholesale off-market endeavor, and if we fast forward to right now, um, since that since I guess it was February of 2020 that we officially launched, we've now done coming up on 200 transactions. Uh, my portfolio consists of 54 um, units; it's like 29 individual properties. And uh, let's see what else we we have expanded now into multiple markets, which we kind of do with this like marketing partnership program. Um so we're doing it all over the country now with our our marketing and sales system that we've developed to find off-market real estate
1: love it so uh, let's unpack some of that first um yeah what's uh, what's a um what's a mistake you've made kind of along that journey
0: yeah um well, i mean i think the biggest mistake that i made was um which i mean it's it's hard not to make is as I was getting into kind of the off-market game, um, thinking that like real estate, especially off-market real estate, was about the asset, about the property, when really it's not. It's more of like a like other sort of businesses where it's about solving problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a big issue that people have, and this can be said for residential assets, multifamily assets anything where you're buying something directly from a seller who, you know, is, is motivated or is just choosing to work with you directly. They ultimately have some kind of problem or some kind of like, you know, circumstance or, or situation that right. needs to have happen. For it,
1: yeah. For it to be yeah. mutually
0: beneficial. Right. Yeah. And so many people, when they start doing off market real estate, they're like, okay, I'm going to look at this asset. You know, the roof sucks. Like I need to fix this. You know, we got to flip, 15 units, whatever it is, if it's a multifamily property. Here's what we can pay. And they're not very successful because they're not listening to the seller. They're not solving the seller's problems, Hmm. you know, and that's why they don't get a lot of opportunities. And one of the reasons we've been able to be successful is because we focus heavily on the seller's problems. And then the asset basically becomes our payment. or the collateral for solving those problems. You know, what is it? I think it was, I don't know if it was Elon Musk that said this or somebody else, but it was, you get... Um paid directly, uh, your payment is directly related to the complexity of the problems you can solve. And that goes for off-market real estate, just like it does with any sort of like innovative or entrepreneurial endeavor outside of real estate as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Like one, one thing I do is, or one of the biggest things I do is raise capital. And that's exactly the same thing. Some, you know, they've got a problem Usually, it's they've got a, a you know money problem, but they don't know exactly where to put their money, and so you're trying to solve that problem for them. And uh, you know that that people people think that it's oh I got to find money for my deals, so I got to find people. Oh, can you invest in my deal? Well, it's it's just reframing that that thought process. So same type of thing. Um. Let's talk about marketing to off-market deals because I think you know that's top of mind for a lot of real estate investors. They want to understand how to do that. Marketing is a big thing. Whether you're a real estate investor or you know just any any entrepreneur, has to be good at marketing. You already said one major item, which is solving people's problems. What are what are other things that you guys do to market to be and and are successful at?
0: Yeah. Um, so we build different marketing funnels dependent on the types of assets that we're pursuing in different markets, right? So, you know, we we have successfully contracted um, and taken down everything from, you know, thirty thousand dollar mobile homes to the largest asset we've done was a fifty five unit mobile home park that we assigned, right? Hmm. We didn't we ended up not buying it. We assigned it to another investor. Um, and all of those assets, they're fundamentally the same in terms of the marketing process what varies is the, the brand behind them and the message that you were trying to portray, right? So like, you know, you go to like a mobile home, for example, or like a residential home, you can use the, you know, we'll buy as is for cash, blah, 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 blah. That's all fine that you sort of share sure. where and that'll convert. But the problem is a lot of people who start in that route, they try to use kind of the same messaging with like larger assets. And it's like, you know, no, if you're trying to buy an $8 million mobile home park, The will buy fast for cash isn't really going to be effective there, right? Like it's not a realistic expectation or realistic conversation. Um, And then sort of like vice versa, right? So like those people, the larger asset owners, they want a more professional conversation. They want to see that you have a track record. They want to see, you know, that you're able to actually perform. If you take that same concept and you try to go to distressed residential people, honestly, they don't want to work with you because most of the time they have an aversion to corporate America right? Yeah. Or like the, the man, right? The, yeah. the white collar people. So you have to switch your message depending on that. Um, not only in, like, it's
1: almost the opposite. Market. I would think it is. Yeah. It, Cause I, I think about it. Like somebody, I get mailings, you know, I've got single families. I got, uh, all kinds of properties going up to a couple hundred units. And when I get mailings from a wholesaler, it's always like the, we'll buy your house fast, you know, cash. And it's like, I got no interest in that because I know you're just going to try to get the best deal. Yeah. But if they come to me with a very much more professional type, it's like, Oh, hmm, this is interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it's all about that initial presentation um, and what you're going for. Same if you're going for like, let's say seller financing, or you're looking for deals where they're willing to, you know, do wraps or carry the notes or anything like that. You need to market that way. But once you have the initial Mm -hmm. interest, you have to be able to maintain that interest without like being invasive. And that's where a lot of other people get in trouble is, you know, the person they engage with them, the lead engaged with them. And now they're like, Hey, cool. I'm going to do a hard car salesman sort of follow-up process on this. When realistically that that works sometimes, but that's not how you ultimately successful. So when we market, we really lean on the whole concept that, Someone needs to see your message for seven to fourteen, um, seven to fourteen times before they're willing to do a conversion. So what we do is on our marketing, you know, we do mostly direct mail. That's our core marketing. So it comes branded; they're familiar with their brand, they're familiar with our names. That's fine. Drives them to a website. Once they go to our website, um, which is you know. Lay out exactly who we are, kind of what we do. We have different websites for the different asset classes for different ask. markets. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we have different brands, marketing brands, different websites, different landing pages for markets. So everything is custom to the individual place that we are. Yeah. And marketing. for the
1: market. So that's a, it's interesting to us. So you're trying to just make it feel really like you're talking to them.
0: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so we have a different, yeah, exactly. Completely different landing page for Detroit versus New Orleans, which are the markets that we do stuff in because they're going to have slightly different messaging, you know, and they want to see their own picture. If you go and you market in New Orleans and you push them to a website that has a picture that's very obviously New York City, New Orleans is proud people, right? They're local to their area. They don't want to work with the northeast guy who's going to come in and do weird stuff in new orleans right Yep. so we drive that and then once they visit our website they are heavily retargeted retargeted through both google ads and social media ads with our brand right so they're going to see videos they're going to see blog posts they're going to see different sort of articles that is partly salesy but also partly informative right and what that does is it builds brand recognition Okay, for us um, in the seller's eyes, but also builds authority because, you know, just like you're trying to sell someone a widget, we are providing them information and we tailor that retargeting depending on the website that they went to and yeah. um, the situation they're probably in. So like, you know, the distressed the home sellers, property sellers, they see more stuff about like bankruptcy relief, you know, different news about um, mm. like auctions, like pre foreclosure, stuff like that. Whereas the people that are the more upper class, like the the white class sort of larger asset sellers, they're going to see articles about, you know, um, know, mortgage rates, things that are going on that are sort of like bigger picture in the economy, um, like reviews of like property management software, if it's multifamily properties. So everything is custom tailored. And even though the general process is the same throughout, it's the small details that are slightly different for everyone that allows us to compete um, and uh, you know have decently high conversion on a lot of our stuff.
1: Are you doing um, you know TV, radio, internet, anything like
0: that, or is it just direct mail? So we do direct mail, and then the internet comes through the retargeting. We don't okay. do cold internet advertising. Yeah, um, yeah. we well, dabbled in that. Why, a little why is
1: that? Yeah, why is that? Just we just to, found that return. That the,
0: Yeah, the the cost per lead and the cost per deal was so expensive. Yeah. Um, And also too, as we, especially starting up here in Washington State, um, we're so close to Seattle, which is just full of tech guys with nothing but money and a strong interest and preference towards internet, right? So they're willing to pay like six or $7,000 a deal through like, you know, PPC, SEO, social media ads, whatever. And I can Mm -hmm. get deals for half that. Without having to compete with them. So I'm yeah. like, cool, they can just have that and I don't worry about it too much.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, you're, and then that's the other thing is like listeners, like you, you got to decide what your own kind of strategy and, and niche is, right? And, and what works for you. It doesn't mean that other people can't be successful. You know, I know a few people that are very successful running TV and radio ads that are wholesalers and do extremely well with it. That's just, what they've become really good at, so yeah, you can always become really good at marketing a specific way, and and that works. And you're you're niching down to that, you know, to that specific strategy. So, um, you you talked about buying, you know, out of state, obviously, and and so you're leveraging. It sounded like you're kind of working with other partners, or what? What was that?
0: Um, yeah, process. Yeah, like? so. Yeah. So basically um, as we started to top out our, our local market here. So I'm in, I'm in Spokane, Washington. That's my home market. It's where I live. This is where most of my um, portfolio is. And it's not a big market, you know, main like extended areas, about 500,000 people. And we reached the point where we were like, every additional deal was starting to cost more and more to get done. So we were like, and we were competing with people for those like, Top end sort of edge case deals. So it ultimately said, we ultimately said, what if instead of trying to just compete with everyone and try to squeeze more juice out of this when it's already squeezed pretty well, what if we went and started doing stuff virtually, right, and started going to other markets, copy our system, and try to basically catch the low hanging fruit in other markets? So we started doing stuff virtually ourselves, um, had some success, but there was constant problems with, you know, the local investor market kind of pushing off outsiders. Um, not knowing the areas, uh, and this is all wholesale based as well um, for for us for the most part. So we started that route, and then um, we said, well, what if we JV'd with people, okay, um, so that they could you know help us figure out buyers and those sort of things. They could know yeah. the areas and help provide feedback. But then the problem we had with JVing was that people tend to have you know different interests on properties that come through the pipeline. So you know if they're local and say like. I don't know, North Carolina, Let's say they're Raleigh, North Carolina, right? Everyone, the conversation was always the same. They were like, okay, hey, cool. We want to joint joint venture and wholesale everything. But then a really sweet rental opportunity comes through. And they're like, oh, well, I actually want to keep this one. But, you know, because we're partners, like we can figure it out. Like, I'm not going to pay you like a full fee because I want a good deal. So maybe we can like catch you up on the next one. And we went through the same iteration about half a dozen times with different people, and then finally, like, okay, screw it, this doesn't make sense. Um, so we said, what if instead we did a wholesale for hire business? Okay, so instead of trying to JV, basically how it works is you hire us, you hire our team to, land to basically plant, and run a wholesale operation in your business and your market. Okay, um, and wholesale can be. You know, for residential or for multifamily, it's basically an off-market marketing business. And yeah. we will do the entire back end. Okay. You help us do underwriting, but that's about it. But once we have stuff signed around, you get all the upside. Okay. Cause you're paying us basically a monthly fee. So it's almost like a franchise in the way that you are yeah. taking our system and you're yeah. able to utilize it fully and you're just hitting the fruits of it. So you're paying your money up front and we aren't collecting on the back end. So you get all the upside if you're able to perform when stuff comes together. Hmm. Um, so we started that earlier this year. Um, and it's been, been going very, very successful so far. We're currently now in nine markets doing that, um, with different investors. And I think our top performer, um, I think for the month of January, you know, we're currently in January, 2023, he's going to be making about 200,000 in revenue this year off of his assignment uh, for this month, rather. off of assignments. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's really good. So have you thought about doing a franchise model with it?
0: A little bit. Um, I mean, we're working with a business coach right now to sort of like figure out how to correctly systematize everything and what that could look like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I do think that it's an option, but honestly, it's just like my inexperience when it comes to what that looks like in business that's yeah. held us back so far. Cause I, I bootstrapped this thing only, you know, three years ago. We were I was still trying to to figure this out and I only flipped a couple of houses and now, you know, and any good month, we're doing fifteen to twenty transactions a month. So, yeah, you were so driving Ubers month. not too long ago. I was like literally, and uh, I mean, even in through most of twenty twenty, while we were trying to figure out how to get this business to take off, I was driving Ubers. Like during COVID, man, Uber Eats you could make good money actually. Yeah, back when it when it first started, so that was my income <laughs> for most of twenty twenty as well. Uh,
1: it's uh, amazing how quickly. Well, first, I guess it's amazing how slow and quick it goes kind of both at the same time. Right. I and mean, you, you'll look back 10, 15 years from now I mean, you'll see the grind and you already do see the grind obviously. But um, yeah, it's amazing how slow things to go and how quick they also go. It's just kind of, kind of fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're completely right. The way I sort of look at it is, you know, that the days seem to take forever But the months and years just like fly by, yeah. you know, and it's just a really interesting thing. Cause like, I tell you what, I've had some of these weeks, especially over the last little bit as the market turned and things got difficult, they were the longest weeks of my life. But, you know, blink of an eye, I remember, I remember so vividly the first property that me and my business partner walked together back when we first started this business back in March of 2020. Um, You know, that seems like it was yesterday.
1: Yeah. it it, And it really was. Um, but there's a lot of grind that's gone into that. Let's talk about a little bit of that grind and some of the daily things that you do. What what are some maybe daily habits, daily things that you do, or you, you know, maybe were key to you getting to where you're at right now?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the biggest key, um, to the success that we've had is, you know, and I, I, this is kind of a personality trait that I have too, but I've always had an undying belief in myself, I guess, to be successful. Um And so when I've approached a lot of these things, I guess failure hasn't really been an option for me. I think a big part of it was the fact that, you know, I had savings, but, you know, I didn't have like an income or anything to fall back on right anymore yeah. when I quit. So I had to perform. Um, so. You know, as I've been making every step forward with this, like, I I know that if I'm consistent with it and I keep learning and improving, it's not really, will I be successful, but when, um, so that's, that's like a huge, I guess, like mindset shift that I made after leaving my W2 was I focus a lot on that. Um, and, uh, I mean, outside of that, like I really through all the grind, I really make a point of setting time aside for myself. Um, mainly for like, for fitness and also for sleep. I know that's a challenging thing that Those are challenging things that a lot of people let slide. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I have a set, um, workout time that I do every single day. Um, I know a lot of people do it early morning. I actually do it in the middle of the day and I schedule myself too, you know, I, I block out my schedules on, on both the front and the back end of it. So there's a little bit of wiggle room, but that yep. way I can't get booked in a meeting. I know I don't take calls. I'm very disciplined about that. And then for my sleep schedule, um, with limited exceptions, I try to be super regimented about that. So it allows me to perform my best. I don't have kids, which helps a lot. I know that's a big difference maker for a lot of people as they have kids, but I'll take the advantages I can get there. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. You say the, the midday, I, I actually really enjoy the midday workout. I mean, I, morning workouts, I get, I understand they're, they're great. I enjoy those too, but man, that midday, it just feels like it just helps me kind of break my day up into segments. Now I got my morning segment, I got my afternoon segment and I got my midday workout. And that for me, it just like, I I'm energized in the morning regardless. Like I just need about three glasses of water and I'm ready to roll. But then I start to get like, uh, you know, but yeah. then I go do my workout and I'm ready to roll then for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Is that, was that the reason for you or did it just kind up of being like, this is convenient?
0: Yeah. So that's 100% the reason for me. Cause it's funny. Cause when I first started Working for myself. Um, You know, you listen to like the Yakka Willings and like yep. the, all those people, and they're like, wake up early, you know, you do your workout, whatever. And I did that for years. Mm-hmm. And then finally, mm-hmm. I was like, I hate this. Like, this yeah. is horrible. Yeah. You know, everyone always said, like, oh, you'll get used to it, all that sort of stuff. I never did after never. years of doing that.
1: I'm the same way. Um,
0: <laughs> and then, yeah. And then I was finally like, you know, what if I just like worked out, you know, during like the lunchtime, made that shift and night and day difference for or exactly what you said. Like, I now have a break in the day. I'm able to work much more efficiently through later in the day, like the two o'clock feeling or whatever that they say on, you know, commercials, and they're talking about the caffeine tablets or they're trying to sell you. I don't have that at all anymore. Yeah, before. I definitely used yeah. to. Um, and it just, you know, was a major game changer on my productivity because now I realistically have 10 productive hours a day versus yep. previously when I was waking up earlier, I would have probably five or six. Because then I would zonk out. I need a break. you tired? Would, yeah, yeah. And even if I went for a walk or like did something else, it just wasn't as, um yeah. as the workout was.
1: Yeah, I love that. And this is kind of derailing the conversation a little bit, but yeah, I, I, I love, I love that because it's just like this pressure for I think so many people, especially entrepreneurs, you got to get up at four, four thirty, mm-hmm. whatever, in the morning, and you got to, you know, do this whole workout and all that kind of stuff, and it's like, I don't know. That's I'm the same way as you, like I've done that and I don't get used to it. And I'm miserable when I'm trying to do it. And it's like, um, I'm being, I'm an entrepreneur because I don't want to be miserable. Not because I want to put myself through (laughs) misery. So I've got enough things that are uncomfortable during the day that I don't need to wake up at four in the morning to make myself even more uncomfortable. I'm going to wake up when I want to wake up. I'm going to do my workout when I want to do my workout. And yeah, we still, both you and I, it sounds like we still have our routines, but it's just not what everybody else says you have to do. And I think Mm -hmm. that's okay. You have to be able to accept that. Like you don't have to do what everybody else has to do. You just have to do what works for you. What makes you really actually pretty happy, right?
0: Exactly. And, And that's what it comes down to is, you know, for longevity with this is, you know, entrepreneurship is hard. Running your own business is super hard but you should at least take the freedoms that you have of like schedule that it comes with it. Um, you know, you need to make sure you're still being productive obviously, but I think a lot of people get stuck because they try to get into entrepreneurship and then they still try to live like with the corporate mindset that they didn't like anyway, which is the reason they were driven into entrepreneurship, but just because mm-hmm. of, I don't know, conditioning of society or whatever, they try to maintain yeah. that same viewpoint. which is make Yeah.
1: Sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, you you chose entrepreneurship for some freedom and flexibility. Why put yourself into shackles?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I love it. Um, you know, you've built the you've talked about the systems uh that you've built maybe i don't know if you want to dive into some of that you've got 11 staff you do 7 to 10 deals a, a month you know what are what are a couple key things that maybe have allowed you to be able to and i'm sure we've covered some of that but what are some of the key things that have allowed you to be able to do 7 to 10 deals a month you know uh, be able to have 11 staff members
0: yeah um so we heavily utilize virtual staff um which is something that i think a lot of people discount um, and I'm not just talking about virtual staff in terms of like, in terms of like VA admins that are crunching numbers, but like we have, for example, a, a graphic designer and web developer who's very high skill, who's based out of Romania, but we pay him a Romanian developer salary. You know, he speaks perfect English. He's very good at his job, but he costs us, you know, 20% of what it would cost to hire that person in the United States. Hmm. Um you know, and then same with like our sales guys. Um, I guess our our hard sales guys, our closers are American, um, but we have other sales staff that, you know, Central America and in the Philippines. And-
1: now Are they doing actual communication then with people? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yep. So they're, yep. They're
1: jumping on the phone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. They're hopping on the phone. They're doing, you know, lead verification. They're scheduling appointments. They're doing a lot of the, um, I would say like, lower sensitivity sales tasks. Um, Same with like our transaction coordination team consists of virtual assistants because it's paper pushing at its core, right? But it still is client facing. So they have to be good on the phone. They have to be able to solve basic problems. Um, But doing that, A, it's kept our overhead low, um, which has allowed us to scale very quickly and put more money into marketing and other things, which is where the actual revenue comes from, right? And also too, it's allowed us to be virtual, so because we've built the whole business with like this virtual workplace in mind, um, we have a ton of, um, I guess, like dynamic ability in terms of like, do we scale business up? Do we scale it down? We're not tied to a location yeah. um, because we've built it this way. We're able to hire American sales staff from all over. So yeah. like my U S based sales staff, we have one that's local here in Spokane. We have one that's in California. Uh, we have one that's in Colorado. We, just, we actually just brought on another American staff today that's in Florida. Hmm. Um, so just like a lot of real estate businesses, and again, I don't know why this is, but they always seem to like have like the office, they want people local, they want all these sort of things, which I understand, I guess, from like an organizational standpoint, it could be easier to manage people. But because we started with the VAs first being virtual and we maintained that, it has allowed us to have a huge amount of more flexibility and like kind of talent that we can bring on, which has been great. Um, yeah. So
1: well, in, in less overhead, are most of these uh, people, employees, or are they working, you know, are
0: you hiring them through like a VA type service? So we hire them direct. Um, yeah. Mostly just through Upwork or honestly, I find a lot of good people on Reddit. Um, mm. Reddit has a for hire subreddit,
1: Interesting. Which,
0: which I actually really like using Reddit because I feel like people are more honest um because like they're behind a screen name okay so i just feel like they you know maybe are worried about less being judged and also too when people they apply to you through reddit most people aren't going to reddit to look for jobs usually they're like scrolling through cat videos or whatever and then they see your job posting because they follow the for hire subreddit, and they're like oh i'm interested in that so they when they're initially reach out it isn't like a job listing where they're like, Hey, here's like the idealistic version of me, which may or may not be yeah. true. Yeah. Um, And then also too, it's very easy for me to background check this person. That's so what I was going to ask. Are you
1: able to see kind of like the, their activity on Reddit?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. And especially with virtuals, like, you know, I've had people that apply and then I click on it. I'm like, well, they're mostly active in like anarchist subreddits. Like maybe I don't want this person in my
1: business. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That, it I think that's really interesting. I never even thought about that as a background check. I suppose you could, I, I don't know. I'm not a Reddit person, so maybe it's hard to find people's names and profiles on there.
0: So you get, you get it like afterwards. So, you know, you're basically just going off of there. What if activity. I,
1: what if I had like a, a regular, you know, job posting or something like that? And I, you know, um, you know, Emily Nelson applies for the job. Can I go and see if Emily Nelson has a Reddit account and, you know, go in and see what her activity is.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. So I don't think you can, because that's the whole point of Reddit. It's supposed to be anonymous. private. (laughs) Yeah. So unless you're finding
1: them through Reddit, you're not really understanding what they're, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Which, you know, you can obviously look on their social media accounts a little bit, but yeah, they can block those or make those private. So. Exactly. Um, Okay. Anything else you want to add to the you know, the, the systems or, you know, being able to do seven to 10 deals a month.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, leaning on the virtuals is huge. And then when it comes to the, the marketing systems um, one of the things that we've really been focused on. um, And so like, we have the different nuances that we use for like the different kind of asset classes that our clients are chasing um, or like different markets that they're in those sort of things. But at its core, we try to have consistency um, across like the places that are like, I guess like the um, different types of assets and that sort of stuff as we're running them. So like, for example, our single family, um, like marketing campaigns, all kind of the same. And yeah. I think that a big thing that a lot of people do when they start to scale this business. And I, I see this talking to a ton of other like wholesalers, off market investors is they don't have a plan. They are ba- like a, a written out pipeline. They basically just get to the first of the month, are going to order their marketing. They're like, okay, what should my message be this mm. week or this month? And then they try to like come up with something. So then you never actually know though, you're never measuring if things are working or not yeah, because you, right. you have no consistency, right? There's right. no split testing on it. And over the years, we've tried a bunch of different, um, you know, kinds of messaging and we will track all of them with different phone numbers. Like, well, I guess we did over the years different tracking numbers we could see like which ones elicited better response hmm. um you know which kind of people would engage with different kinds of letters um and after doing that for about almost three years now we've figured out i guess like a little formula that works really well for us and that we stick to um and i think the biggest thing a lot of people do when they start is they don't track that so they don't actually know what's working and what's not yeah you tracking, have to be intentional tracking.
1: yeah you have to be intentional with everything you're doing and tracking. Where, where are my leads coming from? How are we getting business? Because why spend a ton of money, a ton of effort, a ton of time and be doing it on the wrong thing, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. people will track like cost per lead, cost per deal, because that's easy. But you don't, you need to know like more specifically about what part of that deal mm-hmm. that lead generation process was effective. Like that's kind yeah. of the next level if you, if you really want to optimize and maximize your ROI on this business.
1: Love it. So Mike, we're buying, you know, 100, 200 unit, 300 unit apartment buildings. Um, Mostly not, I mean, maybe some distress, but mostly uh, just, you know, value add, typical value add. Does Have you marketed in that type of, any type of commercial? Obviously you mentioned a little bit about commercial. So have you seen a good amount of success in the commercial space or is that something you're just kind of? starting or where, where are you with that?
0: Yeah. So, um, larger multifamilies like that, we have never shot for those. Um, the largest multifamilies we've done are usually 30 to 50 units. And we've had good success with those. Sure. Um, but in terms of commercial assets, we've actually have had several people come to work with us that are chasing triple net and have done like, honestly, shop.
1: retail, lot. industrial, yeah,
0: retail, industrial, yeah. All, that, yeah. yeah exactly. And we've done shockingly well with that. Mm-hmm. Um, like to the point that when the first person reached out to us, I mean, they were in orange County, California, and they wanted to chase like triple net commercial assets. I'm like, I mean, if like, if you want, like, we'll take your money. But like, I literally said to them, I don't think that this is going to work very well. You know, it's a high income area, super competitive. It's a high asset, val- uh, high value asset. And Sure enough, though, we started marketing there and just like, we're, we were just clicking wow. in opportunities left and right. And I was really surprised. Mm-hmm. And then we brought in our second person that came in that was a referral from the first person who was down in San Diego. And I thought the same thing. I'm like, very highly desirable market. They wanted triple net industrial properties. Um, but we had similar success down there and they're still a, a great client for us and they've been doing very well. Um, so, you know, and now we've had a couple other industrial clients that we've worked with, one up in Pennsylvania. Um one in, what was he? I think he was in Wisconsin Um, and similar sort of stuff, but we haven't had anyone that's come forward and wanted to pursue like super large multifamilies yet. So.
1: Interesting. And again, they're just coming to you saying, Hey, this is, this is kind of my profile and you're helping them then with, uh with the marketing and taking more of a, yep. more or less a fee.
0: Yep, exactly. And, and so how, how it kind of works is we, we really have two tiers of it. Um, so we ha- for, for the residential side, we don't we don't offer this like top tier, I guess for the commercial side because we're just not experienced to underwrite these assets. But for the residential side, we'll actually do full marketing and sales. So mm-hmm. like we'll run the entire back office for them. When it yep. comes to the larger multifamily um, at a lesser fee, we will do um, just the data and marketing. Uh, yep. But then one stuff comes in, like we'll have our call center that receives the calls. They will answer questions with the script that you provide or the questions that you want answered. But then after that, they, so sub, um, we submit the lead to you and then you have to, uh, you know, negotiate the sales and, and do all that sort of stuff yourself, just because we're not equipped to be analyzing yeah. large assets like that.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, cool, man. A lot, a lot of good stuff here, um, but we have to eventually wrap up. So yeah. I got a couple last questions I want to ask you. Uh, what's a favorite book you can pass to our listeners?
0: I mean, I'm a huge 4-Hour week fan. Um, you know, that's kind of the one that, that changed it all for me. Yep. And, you know, that's, that's the book that I've gifted to more people than anyone else, especially people that are, you know, discontent with their current life choices, their career, and they're looking to make a change. And honestly, because a lot of people there, they're in the same boat. Like, I don't really know what I want to do. Definitely. And I feel like that's a good book to start just like encouraging a different thought process.
1: Yep, um, yep. And it's, it's about, not really yeah. about putting only four hours a, a, a weekend. Uh,
0: it, yeah. It's not at all. It's just a great, it's, you know, it's a sort of clickbait title. Yeah. Um, right, and, right. and even though some of the stuff in it's outdated, it's like 12 years old now um, just the principles of it are super, super sound. So I really like that book.
1: Cool. Cool. Um, all right. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation?
0: Yeah. So um, I mean the three pillars of wealth creation where we've been able to be successful Um has been, uh, obviously marketing, like marketing and sales if I put those into one and being able to find those opportunities is the number one key to generating like legitimate wealth, especially when it comes to buying assets, there's no better way to create wealth than buying a, a you know, a property at a discount. Yeah. You know, it comes down to just being math at the end of it, right? You have a $500,000 asset, you buy it for $400,000. You just made, yeah, you just
1: made $100,000.
0: Yeah, exactly. So marketing and sales is huge. Um, and then uh, um, let's see on top of that, like systemization and consistency, like whether that's within your business, whether that's within your investing discipline, um, you know, that's just like, you know, getting to work every day, like doing the same thing over and over. Most wealth is created by doing the same boring thing over and over again for a long enough period of time. Um, I think that'd be the big thing. And then honestly, my, I think my third pillar would be, um, just like personal health, because regardless of what you do, if your personal health is poor, you're not going to be wealthy in like a true sense, right? You can be wealthy maybe on paper, but if you're not able to enjoy that, right. Is that even wealthy? I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. You get a lot of money, but if you don't have, um, the health or anything to spend it, man, it's not worth it. So exactly. love it. Uh Mike, really appreciate uh your time. How can our listeners get in touch with you?
0: Yeah. So um if you want more long form stuff from me, the I have my own podcast, the Collecting Keys Real Estate Investing Podcast. You can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you know, we go into we have interviews with people, we go into deep dives in into business and sort of how we run our marketing sales tactics, um, everything kind of in between that. So Please check that out. That's a that's a great way to hear more from me. And then, if you want to reach out to me directly, the best way is on Instagram, which is at Mike underscore invests. Go ahead and shoot me a DM on there. Um, I'm always happy to chat with people, and I've been working on creating a lot of content on there. One of my goals for 2023 was to post a piece of content every single day. Hmm. And so far, I've been successful. So, nice. you know, lots of tidbits on there coming from me this year.
1: That's awesome. Every time I think that that's my goal or make that my goal i just i don't like social media so i (laughs) typically don't get it done that's how
0: that's how my business partner is too um yeah but tell you what though man if you're trying to raise money like it's a great way to do it it is it is you just kind of have to get past like the the cheesiness of it and it sucks. And here's the thing too is like i've made videos where i'm like man that was so cringy like i can't yeah and like yeah and they'll go huge (laughs) though Like I, I have one right now that I did, um, that I sent to my business partner. I was like, "Should I even post this Like, this sucks. And he's like, "He's like, oh, it's good. Like, it'll spur a conversation." I have like fifty thousand views. On it. <laughs> and I'm like, "Of course, like." And yeah. I've had tons of different prospects and things reach out, and I'm just like, "Okay, well, dang, I guess I was completely wrong on that."
1: <laughs> <laughs> just put it out there. I mean, yeah. it's it, that's the thing: is you put stuff out there, you just don't know what's gonna hit. It, the some of those things that. I, it, when I put it out there, I'm like, "This is awesome," and like three people look at it, mm-hmm. and and that's it. And then so you're right. I mean, some of the stuff you put out there, you're like, eh, "I probably don't want to post this." And then you end up posting it. You're like, "What the heck? How did how, how yeah. did all these people like this? This is this was the worst thing I put out." You know, it's just, you yeah. just don't know. um So you just gotta you just gotta with social media, it feels like you just gotta throw stuff out there mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff's not going to stick and a couple things will.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just like, just like the marketing we talked about before, right? It's consistency and yep. then, you know, measuring the kind of stuff that does well. And then just yep. doing more of that,
1: do more you of do that. that,
0: you know, you do it long enough and ultimately consistency is more important than perfection in pretty much everything.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that. Yep. Absolutely, man. Well, again, really appreciate it. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you having me on.